0: your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome back to the Inner Armor podcast. We have a scary episode tonight because we're recording this on Halloween night. And Doc and I both have a similar situation that we've got trick-or-treaters are going to be coming to the door. And whenever the trick-or-treater comes, not only does the doorbell ring, but more importantly, our dogs bark when the trick-or-treaters Crazy. come the street. It's right. But tonight we're continuing our series on autism. And we're going to have an extra special guest today who is in a different location. I don't know if they're celebrating Halloween there or not, but I'll let her explain that. And Doc, would you like to introduce our guest?
1: Yes, we are so excited today to have Grace Royer, who is my daughter-in-law with us today. And she's joining us from Japan. So the reason we're recording at night is because it's tomorrow in Japan in the morning. And it's when we can sync up with Grace. Grace is married to my son, Joe, who is a physician in the Navy and is stationed in Japan, in Tokyo. But Grace has a very interesting story. And of all my children, Grace probably aligns most with my my skill sets and my background because she has a psychology background and she has a significant specialty in the area of autism. So Grace, can you say hi to our group and just tell them a little bit about yourself and we'll get started.
2: Hello, hello. I am, as Doc said, Grace Royer and I am his daughter-in-law and I am a board certified behavior analyst. So I work with children with autism and other disabilities, but primarily autism to reduce maladaptive behavior and increase skill sets.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, That sounds like a very challenging thing. And I know from experience, meeting up for With Joe and Grace for dinner when they were back in the States and looking over and seeing bruises all over Grace's arms and cuts and scrapes. And what are you doing, Grace? And I've come to find out that this is part of some of the uh, casualties of her job set, working at addressing some of these maladaptive behaviors. But can you tell us a little bit about that history? What drew you into this and kind of give our, our listeners who you know, may or may not know anybody with autism. You know, what is this world like? And uh, you've immersed yourself in it. So can you tell us a little bit more?
2: Yeah, so autism is pretty close to home for me because my brother has autism. And so I grew up around the around the disability. And the things that I deal with from young children now as a, as a therapist and as a behavior analyst are things that I was used to growing up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think what drew me into applied behavior analysis was just a desire to help people like my brother. I am unable to use the same principles with him, obviously, because he's family. And the emotional component of that is not only unethical, it would be unethical for me to work with him, but it's also... Emotionally, just really not possible yeah. because you don't have the same objectivity in, in working with a family member that you do with a child that you don't know personally. And so that's what drew me into the field. And I've been working with children with autism as a, as a professional for several years now. And yeah.
1: So... So tell me, do you work at a center or, you know, tell me what this is like? Is this, what, for our listeners out there, what is the place that you work at? What, like, a normal day might look like for you as a therapist there?
2: Right. So as a therapist or a behavior analyst at this clinic, the day starts at about 8.30 and you have about eight hours of therapy time total, and that's usually direct intervention. We work on five-hour and three-hour shifts sessions and it just depends on the child sometimes we shorten the session time just because they are unable to handle that long of a session and so it's very individualized but then we apply these principles of behavior analysis such as for example reinforcement which is you're more likely to do something that is reinforced or praised, and you're less likely to do something that doesn't change your environment which is extinction basically and so we use these principles of behavior analysis to not only improve client skill sets and teach them new skills, such as, especially, and one of the important ones is functional communication, which is asking for what they want.
0: Mm.
2: Especially, that's especially important for children that are nonverbal, which we have a lot of. And we use the principles of extinction and things like that for reducing maladaptive behaviors. And a lot of the behaviors that we see in the clinic, which are why docs saw me with bruises all over me, one of the most common behaviors that we deal with is physical aggression. And typically that is due to a lack of ability to effectively communicate, which is one of the most important things that we teach can, as behavior analysts. Can I
0: ask a question as a layperson here for some of our listeners? What is this term extinction? Can you explain what that is in, in the context?
2: I can't. So the way that behavior works from a behavior analytic perspective is everything that we do changes something in the environment. So I'll give you an example. A child that does not want to complete a worksheet. They don't like what they're being asked to do. They might hit you to get away from that task. So extinction, and in this case, escape extinction, is where that behavior is no longer effective in the environment. Mm. If they hit you, they don't get out of doing the worksheet. So basically, the principle of extinction is that the environment does not change as a result of the behavior. And it's based on the, one of the principles of ABA that says that everything you do changes the environment. So everything you do is for a reason. There's a function to every behavior. And determining the function of that behavior is always the first step in reducing the behavior or increasing the behavior.
1: Wow. So the level of observation that you're having to do to break these behaviors down, did you say three hours or five hours?
2: Three hour and five hour sessions. So Goodness. the clinic that I work for also runs a school. And so the school, the school is in the morning and it operates for five hours where we sit with these children and we, Do things that you would do in a typically developing school, except they have one-on-one behavior support, which is very, very helpful for them. We've seen so much growth and even more than you would see in a typical special education classroom because they have that one-on-one support. And then three-hour sessions in the afternoon, that's usually just direct therapy. And we work on their skill acquisition and we work on behavior reduction. So we are constantly teaching them new skills in these sessions, and responding in a way that reduces the likelihood of them engaging in maladaptive behavior, such as hitting, or spitting, or self-injury.
1: So, could you give us like a an example of like how old of a, a client, without you know a specific client, but kind of stage of development? How's this child coming in? How long might they be with you? Just kind of give us like a, an example. You know, we always use the word Johnny. We're always using poor Johnny all the time. That's who we always talk about. So let's imagine there's a Johnny out there and he comes to the center. What is Johnny? I know that everybody comes in different shapes and sizes, but, you know, what would be kind of for our listeners, what would this be like? What would Johnny be struggling with and how would this program look?
2: Right. Well, first of all, let me be by saying that we have kids that come in from all different ages, from 3 to 17.
1: Wow. Um, that's, yeah.
2: And they may be with us until they age out of the program, which is they age out of one of the programs at 18. But another one goes on until 21. And they, they can come in at as early as 3 years old. A lot of them, let's just use poor Johnny as an example. Shh. So say that we have a 5-year-old who comes in nonverbal and engaging in all kinds of behaviors that are the parents are just so overwhelmed with yeah. naturally such as physical aggression you know they're they're biting We get a lot of biting they're biting they are banging their heads on the floor they are spitting they are running away and so what we do is they come in and we start with a assessment an indirect assessment with the parents an indirect resess- assessment refers to an assessment where we're not actually observing the client one-on-one. We are discussing things with the parents. And so we get some basic information, some based on the observations of the parents and the experience of the parents. We review a lot of documents and then we go in and we observe Johnny for ourselves. And as behavior analysts, the first thing that we want to do, as I mentioned earlier is determine the function of Johnny's behavior. So we do this through multiple assessments one of the assessments that we use is an indirect assessment. So we ask the parents to break down the behavior, say, okay, what happens before the behavior? Mm. What Are you asking him to do something? Are you taking something away from him? And then what does he do, right? Does he bite? Does he run away? Does he scream? Does he sort of fall down on the floor? And then we say, okay, what happens after the behavior? Do you give him that toy? Do you ask him to stop doing what you were asking him mm-hmm. to do? Does his sister give him attention? You know, because we see a lot of behaviors that are, for, there's multiple functions. There's four functions of behavior. One is tangible. One is escape. One is attention or access. And one is automatic. So we see a lot of automatic behaviors such as motor stereotypy, like flapping the hands and things like that. That's usually for an automatic function. So it, it feels good to them. But usually it's socially mediated. They're getting out of doing something that they don't want to do. They're gaining attention, even in the form of negative attention, like, stop mm. that. What are you doing? Or they're gaining access to an item. Things like that. Wow. But So we observe Johnny. And then sometimes we do what's called an FA, a functional analysis. So, we create these little mini scenarios and we see how he behaves in these certain scenarios. And that helps us determine the function of the behavior, the likely function. And so, from there, we build a behavior reduction plan, which includes strategies to reduce this problem behavior. But we also want to target certain behaviors for increase. We want to teach Johnny, who is nonverbal, how to communicate because. You can't reduce the behavior without giving a replacement behavior. That is considered unethical in behavior analysis. And so you're not going to see very much progress if you just stop responding to Johnny when he's screaming. You're going to see your progress if you give him the skills to be able to communicate what he wants effectively.
1: Wow. I mean, it's so intricate. And I, I can remember back when I was at the Children's Hospital in the early nineties and we had an autism clinic where we were assessing kids that physicians might think suspect of autism early, early development. But we really didn't have much to do for them, you know, behaviorally because the, it was such a complex set of behaviors and the, the breakdown of communication is so huge to not be able to communicate And I actually remember when the first time I heard about ABA or Applied Behavioral Analysis, what you're doing was like, for me, it was sometime in the early 90s that there was a place about an hour away that was actually doing this at Western Michigan. And I remember sending my first family down there. This is after like years of frustration, like what to do. And uh, they came back and started talking about how detailed the behavioral interaction was and how intensive it was. But it took that level of intensity down to the most minute behaviors to actually start to extinct some of these other behaviors, but then introduced the new behaviors. And it was striking to see the difference in these kids over time, but it is definitely not a therapy that's for the fame to hire, if I'm not mistaken. The question I guess I have for the two of you as experts,
0: uh, maybe on behalf of some of the listeners out there, lay people, this model, ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, it sounds really wonderful, but it also sounds very, what's the right word, labor intensive. In other words, you have a highly skilled, highly trained individual like Grace... Who's putting in a lot of hours with a client. And so my question is, how prevalent is this for the listener out there who thinks I, my child may have this condition and what options do I have? Is this ABA model with this level of intensive interaction? Is this common? Is it, is it prevalent? Is it available to, to most of our listeners who might be concerned about their child?
2: It depends on the location. There are ABA clinics all over the country, but just due to the volume of the cases, it just depends on the location of whether you're going to be put on a waiting list and stay there for a while or whether you're going to get right in. But they're up and coming. There are a lot of ABA clinics that are developing throughout the country, even as we speak. And so if there are any listeners who are parents of children that suspect that they their child might have autism i would absolutely recommend the earliest intervention possible reach out to someone in your community and just see what's available because it is so important to get it early and the earlier that you begin intervention the more progress that your child is likely to make
1: when i was first seeing aba available I mean, it wasn't covered by insurance. It was, you know, it was like, what is this? And it was very time consuming, you know, so the insurance companies were like, you can't do this in 15 minutes. Please right. No. But then I think what's happened is ABA has shown itself to be an extremely appropriate and primary intervention for addressing these early developmental and communication issues that happen uh, with the autistic population that need to be, it's like Grace is saying, it's the earlier the better. And so that's that identifying the child and then trying to do whatever you can to get into this type of therapy can be super helpful. And I think, Grace, with your... Now that you're uh, board certified, you then supervise other. How do, what's the layers? How's the tiered system work in that? Like you help other people do the therapy or supervise them? Is that right?
2: Right. So, and you have to be additionally credentialed to be a supervisor, which I am. So, as a behavior analyst, the, well, the hierarchy goes RBT BC ABA, which is an assistant behavior analyst and behavior analyst. And behavior analysts, which is what I am, is, are the people that write behavior plans. They are the ones that are doing more of the analysis level. Gotcha. And determining the function of the behavior and writing the behavior plan and getting the child set up for Medicaid, things like that. And the therapists, which is what I was for several years, are the ones that are doing the most direct intervention. And God. so as a BCBA, we conduct supervision for, ther- for RBTs, for registered behavior technicians. And we make sure that they are implementing the behavior plan correctly. And we help them with any issues that they're having, because especially if they're a young therapist or if they're, if they're new at therapy, they have a lot of trouble with certain behaviors. And so we are always there to step in and say, okay, this is what we're doing wrong. This is what we could be doing better. This is how you respond to that behavior. And we're kind of there in, in time of crisis if the behavior escalates to a point of where it's too difficult for them to handle by themselves.
1: See, so, I love this. It's almost this triage model that Greg and I have talked about in previous podcasts for things like anxiety and depression where it's just like one model kind of fits that, which is counseling. But I think what the ABA world has found out is there's just not enough therapists to address the needs. So let's create kind of a, a hierarchical system where you take somebody like yourself who has this, all this extra certification and that's extra exams and those kind of things that can then oversee... A group, a larger group, and then that group also works with another group, which is much larger. So it's not that left. We don't have a a line of severe autistic children that's three thousand miles long. It's still long, okay. But it's a it is the beginning of maybe a solution to try to get this type of therapy to this population. Right. Yeah. Awesome. What do you see, see are some of the more difficult things for families with individuals with severe autism? What are, the, what are the like top three things that you think that families have a hard time with through the long haul of managing this disorder?
2: Well, one of the most significant things that immediately comes to mind, and this is not speaking about behaviors, it's speaking about an associated idea and I'll get to behaviors in a moment, but one of the most difficult things that the parents experience, even when their child is undergoing intervention, is a concept called behavioral contrast. And behavioral contrast is where the child interacts differently in one setting or behaves differently in one setting than they do in another. So Mm -hmm. even though we're doing therapy and we are doing you can have kids that have eight hours of intensive therapy a day and every single day, Monday through Friday. Wow. And so you have a child who is improving and their behaviors are, you know, their physical aggression is reduced, is being reduced. They are manding, they're asking for what, or asking for what they want more often. They are even beginning to use a little bit of language Or they're beginning to use their AAC device or their PECs, which are both communication systems that we utilize for children who simply cannot speak. That's their words for them. We adapt that in order to give them that form of communication. But then they go home and they are throwing tantrums. Mm -hmm. They're being physically aggressive with their parents. They're not asking for anything. They're just going to hit you to get what they want. Because it's, it might be easier for them to do that than to ask for what they want. And so the biggest thing that we, that we deal with, I think, is behavioral contrast. And I've seen that in my own family. They just interact differently with their family or at home mm. or in another setting, such as school, than they do in the clinic setting. And so that's. A thing that's really tough for parents, which is where parent training often comes in, which is where we are teaching these parents the Mm -hmm. same principles that we are applying and helping them apply them at home because we're giving them that knowledge and we're letting them practice and we're using similar techniques to help parents learn. And so that's where parent training comes in. But as far as behaviors, I would say that probably the two most draining behaviors for parents are physical aggression and self-injury and I say that just out of personal experience as well or tantruming which can encompass multiple behaviors into one umbrella basically and when you are physically exhausted with your child it's it's easy to just give up and and Mm -hmm. to give into what they are wanting without them engaging in the appropriate behavior. It's easy to reinforce behavior, you know, and so when we talk to these parents and when we do this parent training, I can tell you as a, as a family member or someone with autism, we are not judging you. We are absolutely not judging you. We understand those of us who have been in the thick of it in our own families, especially we understand that this is really, really tough. And we just want to be there to give you the tools and to give your child the tools that they need to live the best life possible. When I do this, I do this for the families. I do this for the families of children who cannot talk. And Mm. all they know to do to get what they want is to aggress against their parents or their siblings or to bang their hedge on the floor. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of of these behaviors and many of them hit very close to home. And the reason that I am a behavior analyst is because I want to make a difference in these people's lives, no matter what the cost to myself. Being a behavior analyst is not an easy job, but what I learned very early on mm-hmm. as a therapist and watching my boss, who was a behavior analyst, and what, what I learned very early on is you come in, and you count the cost of helping this child, you say, okay, I might yell, I might get screamed at, I might get kicked, I might even get my finger broken. But is it worth it to me to experience Mm -hmm. this for three hours or five hours Mm -hmm. in order to help this child live a more productive life or live have better quality of life? Because the parents... And the families, they are dealing with it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They do not get to go home and stop doing ABA. They don't get to go home and stop dealing with this behavior. They deal with it constantly. And so that really helps put it into perspective for behavior analysts. Like, okay, I can do this for five hours. I can do this for three hours. We're going to be asking them to do things that they don't like more than they would be at home probably because we're doing intensive intervention. But this parent is dealing with and and has dealt with this behavior for this child's, probably most of this child's entire life.
0: Doc, I know that your deep background is in family systems. I mean, long before you were running around with NFL quarterbacks, I believe your dissertation was on family systems. And I'm just curious what thoughts you have about the health of a family system when this kind of stressor is introduced, because... There's the obvious effects on the child, but it must introduce enormous stresses and complexities in the family system. And I wonder if you have some insights on that. Maybe any listeners out there who are dealing with this.
1: Yeah, I mean, the system gets pushed to its edges in individuals or families that have to deal with severe autism which, and all different levels too. You know, we had our last person that we interviewed was talking about high needs versus low needs, autism versus high functioning, low functioning. And, you know, Grace is primarily talking about a lot of high needs and the amount of disability that's going on in this high needs autism population requires the system to give everything that it has. And there are a couple big emotions that that system experiences as well as the child. But I think the first one is, is a, a major sense of loss that happens. Loss in communication, kind of, imme- you know, in the immediate, at the macro level, different stages of development, every stage, you know, you're looking around and seeing other kids at that stage of development, and then you're looking at your child and you're having to to figure out well, what are we going to do on this stage of development? And then what are we going to do on the next stage of development? And now, you know, Grace mentioned they age out. Oh, well, what do we do now? And, you know, the Dr. Liberatory who we had on here earlier, that was the whole reason for creating the USA Autism Homes, because there has to be something beyond just somebody aging out well we're done helping this population which we're finding need three and five hours of therapy a day that doesn't make any sense but the system is gonna everything is gonna get intensified in the system and it learns very fast that it's either communicates or it dies it is you have to communicate number one thing I would say to any family Mom, Dad, siblings—that siblings that, siblings that aren't autistic. How are we all communicating? Are we talking about the things that we're, you know, not talking, not talking about, but should be? And so, you know, that's so important. Communication's number one. I was with a family out in out west a few months ago, where the child, the diagnosis was autism, and you know, we we're talking about ABA. But even before ABA, I told my uh, recommendation to the family was you guys need to, mom and dad need to start scheduling three times a week, three, three times a week that you're meeting for an hour for basically, you know, business meetings on where are we with this behavior and our response to this behavior. And we have to be on the same page because emotions will get involved and, uh, we'll be going in different directions, which is not good. And all for this child. So communication, A, number one. And also predictability would be number two. Setting up structure for everybody, not just the child, but for everybody to know what are the family rules, what are the, what's the structure that we're going to abide by helps decrease your anxiety across the board. But those are just a couple things system-wise. Grace, what do you think even though these children can't communicate what are the primary emotions that you see that's driving a lot of different things? What's what is the emotion that are emotions? There's probably more than one, but what are the big ones that you're dealing with?
2: Well, and and I'm I'm kind of going a little bit outside of behaviorism when I'm talking about emotions, but I will I will totally do that because I have the the psychology background, but taking my BCBA hat off for just a moment so I can talk about emotions. I see, we see a lot of, we see a lot of frustration. We see a lot of anger because they cannot communicate with yeah. what they want. You are not getting it. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and everything is so is so exponentially multiplied because they're, they're children and their brains are still developing. And, you know, they're already dealing with a lot. And, for instance, if you take a toy from them, if you tell them it's time to come to the table and work for five minutes and you ask them to hand you their iPad, in their mind, it is like you had taken their iPad for the rest of their lives and they are never going to get it back. And they don't want anything to do with you now. Yeah. So... You know, you, you see a lot of frustration and a lot of just basic childhood emotions and, and reactions that you see in typically developing children. Everything is just kind of blown up and, and, and multiplied as far as how bad it is. But you also, you also see a lot of anxiety.
1: Mm-hmm. We
2: see so much anxiety because they or, you know, or responses to physical pain, which that's not an emotion. But another thing we see is responses to physical pain. Because they can't, they're, they're in, they might be in physical pain and they can't tell you. They can't communicate that. Or they are anxious because their world is just kind of spiraling out of control in that moment and they don't know how to communicate that either. Or they don't like what you're asking them to do and it is making them nervous. Mm-hmm. And so all they know to do is to engage in that behavior and try to get out of that situation or try to get access to that, that toy back or et cetera.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, it's interesting as you talk through all of this, this is, some, there's so many extremes in this disorder, but yet there's so many things that are kind of similar to all of us. I mean, we're all definitely- humans, right? You know? The autistic child is just as human as I I am and has an amazing brain even in their worst situation and that's so important for everybody to understand it's not that the brain is any less wondrous it's absolutely right. amazing even in its worst state because you're doing these things in this nonverbal developmentally delayed times all these this child this human is figuring this stuff out which is so cool right and when you talk about extinction and reward and contrast behavior was it contrast behavior is that what behavioral contrast inner contrast i kind of think of we all kind of do this stuff at the. absolutely <laughs> but it, you know hey i'm pretty good at work but you know i come home and you know, I'm coming unglued, you know, or, or whatever that is, but that's interesting. These
2: principles, these principles are applicable to everyone. They are applicable to everyone. That is why ABA is possible for everyone. The principles of behavior analysis can be used to not just help people with autism, but help even the general population, behavioral modification. We can help typically developing people. Yeah. Or children with ADHD. We see a lot of ODD. So all of these behavioral principles are are so widespread because like you said, they are in, in a sense very much exactly like us. They yeah. just have different things going on in their brain.
1: Absolutely.
2: But they are no less wondrous and unique and precious.
1: No, that's very, very true. Man, we are so thankful for you in the trenches doing this stuff. I mean, it's so it's such a big thing. And I, I don't think many of our listeners probably even knew what this was or understood the depth at which people are trying to help the autistic population. And, you know, this has just very been very informative even for me to and to think in my last thirty years where this has gone is tell, speaks to the validity of what you're doing. This has developed more and more and more to the point that I have a daughter-in-law who's a board-certified applied behavioral analysis analyst. So let's go ahead and finish up. Greg, do you have any other things that
0: you do add or want to? I know that both of you kind of addressed this during our conversation, but I'm imagining a listener out there who is really concerned about their child. Maybe their family is under a lot of stress. They're going through this. They're wondering, is my child autistic? What, what's going on? How do I get help? They're intrigued by the things that Grace has talked about. Doc or Grace, what does that listener do? What's their next move to try to get on a pathway to help?
1: Yeah, i am kind of throwing my two cents. And then if I miss something, Grace, you can let me know. But the first thing that we want to make sure is that they're getting an accurate diagnosis and that might not just be the first person that you see. You may need to be the biggest advocate for your child. And so in the child space, yes, you have a family practice doc, but you also might find family practice docs who may not know a lot about this. And so their referral to a pediatric psychologist or a behavioral pediatrician is a good type of specialty to look for. And that's pediatrician who's specifically looking at addressing behavioral concerns and, or you might have a a psychologist, a child psychologist. So you first need to start there because that's going to get the whole system moving is that diagnosis. And without the diagnosis, and really knowing what's going on, which could be something else developmentally, you can't kind of get the whole system moving forward. And then I think Graves has mentioned a lot of different things about ABA, but starting to research that and learn more about that is another really good place to be. And also, I would say piggyback off of the the podcast is Make sure you're communicating with your spouse and other family members. If you have concerns, make sure you're, you're talking those through so that everybody can be on the same page because the united force is what's going to help this child most. Grace, anything that I missed there that you might add? or
2: I would just, in, in that case, just second what Doc said about getting a diagnosis because we can't really do anything as far as ABA therapy. And Mm -hmm. then being qualified for that until a diagnosis, even if it's ADHD, it might not even be autism. It doesn't have to be. We can get services for a child with ADHD or ODD or anything like that. But you have to get a diagnosis first. And if you are really struggling with that, if you reach out to one of your local ABA clinics, there are a lot of clinics that will actually help you with that Mm -hmm. process. And they will begin before they begin officially onboarding you they will help you to get that diagnosis and help you to get certified with the insurance company so that your child can receive services you don't have to do it alone but the final thing that i would say to anybody struggling with this situation is to not lose hope Mm -hmm. because there there are resources and there is hope and we are here to help you
0: Wow. What a great conversation. And if you're curious about applied behavior analysis, you can go to Google. There's lots of websites, lots of information out there. You can find some resources, find some clinics. But again, as both Doc and Grace said, you need to start with your local physician and get that diagnosis. If you'd like to learn more about Inner Armor, of course, you can go to Amazon and read our book, Forge Your Inner Armor. It's available in print, ebook, and audiobook. And you can go to our website, forgeinnerarmor.com. You can learn all about the ways that we are helping people to strengthen their brain and their autonomic nervous system and to better regulate their life and to become the best versions of themselves. you can do that at forgeinnerarmor.com. Doc, Grace, thank you so much for this conversation, and we'll see you again next week. Great. Thank that you. It was a
2: pleasure. Thank you.
0: This has been the Inner Armor podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.